Hello and welcome to another episode of the Moving Picture Show. I am Rudy in Auckland. And Chris in Chicago. Obviously, um, uh, I guess a, a well-known film noir. I, I... Oh, are we, are we starting right now? With <laughs> yeah, we can just start. <laughs> <laughs> we can just start. It's cool. Yeah. Okay. So I guess it's it's it's. I don't know. I mean, it's. I'm not sure where to begin with this movie because um, I feel like it is kind of a bad movie. <laughs> It's like a bad B movie from the 1940s. I don't know if you could even call it a B movie. It's like a B movie of a B movie almost. Yeah, it's like uh it's shot it was shot in like 6 days. Oh, uh, actually I think from what I found when I did my research that the shooting schedule was actually 28 days. The the 6 days comes I think comes from a comment that the director had made later in life and I don't know how accurate that actually is. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Let's start by talking about the director first yep. of all. We got Edgar G. Ulmer, and you know, Wikipedia his name, and I've seen some of his movies before, and it's interesting because he's made one of the most well-known horror films ever made, uh, The Black Cat with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, um, which I haven't seen, but it's like reputation precedes it. He's also made. Which would be in my top five worst movies ever made, um, Bluebeard from 1944. I watched it with a group of friends, and we had no idea what was going on the entire movie. Um, it's like a serial killer who gets women, who kills women in London. I have no idea. And then he also made um, The Man from Planet X, which <laughs> I actually haven't seen, but... Um, I only know from like the movie poster and stuff like that. So it seems like he early in his career, you know, he's from Europe and he, he worked on some amazing movies. So it's disputed and, you know, considering how shitty these movies are, I'm going to have to say maybe he didn't work on them. But suppose he worked on the German expressionist movie, The Golem, which I've seen recently, which was amazing. Metropolis and M, two of Fritz Lang, Fritz Lang's probably best, you know, best two films. And then... Um, but his own movies, like he peaked at like the Black Cat, which was his second film, and then he made more and more schlock as it went on. You know, like I don't know a lot of these movies, but you know they're probably bad. You got The Strange Woman, Saint Benny the Dip, Daughter of Doctor Jekyll, The Naked Dawn, you know, The Amazing Transparent Man, Beyond the Time Barrier. So he kind of like went into Roger Corman territory. It looks like. Um, so he did, yeah, he's done he's done a lot of sort of I guess horror slash science fictiony stuff like more what you would find I guess in, in the nineteen fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just interesting though that he made. I don't know. I, it makes me interesting to. I mean, I wish we um, maybe had a little more time for research ahead of this, but like the Black Cat is one of Universal's like, you know, with. Frankenstein and Dracula, it's it's considered one of their best horror movies. It's Universal Studios, so it's like 
how to go from this to just, you know, 10 years later, he's making detour like on a shoestring budget from a, from, um, production releasing corporation, one of the poverty row film studios, you know, it's like, how did he fall so hard? Yeah, that's, I don't know. And I think he also directed a lot of his movies under a different name. Um, Mm. But yeah, it's that that's that that's 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 certainly an interesting question. I don't know how he went from obviously making such a good horror movie to making a lot of making a lot of bad B movies essentially. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. But anyway, so uh, do we want to do a little quick little plot summary? Yeah, sure. I um. I mean, it's it's there's not. I don't, don't think there's that much to summarize. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's just put it out there because I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it then. I guess. Um, yeah. Just so anyone who's listening knows, this is full of um, spoilers and whatnot. Um, you can watch this movie for free on the um, Internet Archive. Just Google Internet Archive. It should come up. It's also public domain, so it's probably on YouTube. And um, yeah, you can, you I can watched, basically you can just download you can download a copy of this movie from anywhere because the the copyright owners they never renew the copyright. So if you anyone who who has a DVD or a VHS of this movie can make copies and distribute it. I think. Yeah, it's completely yeah. So it's not breaking the law. Yeah. Just download yeah. it anywhere. Um, so basically, okay, the movie starts out in New York in a CD. Well, actually, no, sorry. Let me go back. The movie starts out in a diner in the middle of nowhere. And you see this guy unshaven, and you find out his name's Al, and he's a piano player at a jazz club in New York. And he is in romance with, maybe engaged to the lead singer, who is this angelic blonde, who decides one day to try to be uh, make it big in Hollywood. So she moves to Los Angeles, and he continues playing, though he's kind of mi- he's miserable without her, and he decides to hitchhike to Los Angeles to be with her. On the way, he gets picked up by a real character. We're going to have to – it's probably going to be like the majority of our conversation named um, Charles Haskell Jr., who dies. We'll talk about maybe why he dies. And so Al c- – instead of, uh, you know, talking to the police, decides to bury this man's body in the desert, steal all of his things, and continue to Los Angeles in the man's car with his identification. And he picks up a, uh, a another hitchhiker played by, you know, a young woman who is um, supposedly from Phoenix. Her name is Vera. And she basically, uh, I don't know, guilt trips him to make him her prisoner for the last hour and then uh an altercation later she winds up dead and you realize that al can never uh be in los angeles because of the murder there and he can never be in new york because supposedly um because he left his id on the body he buried in the desert so he wanders the midwest as a nameless person and in the end a police car picks him up which means he is either being picked up right now, or the way he's talking, it's just foreshadowing for the future that he basically has nothing to live for, and except for eventually going to prison. 
Roll credits. Yeah. So that's the movie in a nutshell, and we'll we'll definitely going to talk about that ending as well. But, um, so I'm watching this movie and sort of you know get, watching it the first ten fifteen minutes, and I'm like, man, this is like low budget. Like, <laughs> it's like the acting's not very good. The, the dialogue is like you can tell this movie was made by people who really like film noir and they were like yeah we're gonna write this movie and it's gonna have all this film noir dialogue in it and it's gonna be badass and it's like "Mm, yeah it's not really but it's kind of funny and enjoyable at the same time um yeah Yeah, it's it kind of reminds me of like an ed wood movie (laughs) it's just like you know, all this film noir is happening. It's like, yeah, I'm going to make one. And then it's like, it sort of loses the plot. I mean, both figuratively and literally about like, I'd say 15 or 20 minutes after it starts. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually enjoyed the beginning a bit, to be honest. Like, it, it, first it had me hooked. Um, like when he's in the, the, the diner at the beginning. Um, I mean, things were a little budget back then. I think the worst thing is his beard. You know, it's like painted on. It doesn't even look... It's like he could have just not shaved for one yes. day. Um, but no, like, for a while... Uh, well, I don't know. We'll get into it. So, like... Yeah, it's... My first reaction was... I, I, know, I wasn't until about... Um, they were driving around that I realized how low budget it was. Like, I know it's low budget overall, but... I didn't realize we're talking, like, no money. <laughs> yeah. Until we're about, <laughs> I'm about halfway through because I started to realize that except for the opening scene and then the two small scenes at the club, there are no characters. And I'm like, okay, well, everything is like – it's like the movie's forcing it to be the majority him and one other person with it mostly being Vera. And for a while, I'm like, this isn't going anywhere. Why is it doing this? I'm like – I realized that they're padding out the length of the movie because the movie is only 68 minutes and they don't have the budget to have other actors. So it's almost like um, a cheap play in a lot of ways where it's like, okay, well, we're just going to have more conversations again and again with the same two people. And um, because, yeah, there's, you know, there's Al, there's um, Sue Harvey, the blonde. Yeah, Sue. Yeah, Sue Harvey, there's Vera, there's Charles Haskell Jr., who's only in it for, like, one scene. And then everyone else is, like, um, a character with one line. So it's really almost feels like a play. And, um, yeah, that's when I knew it was cheap because it was like this is – this feels like padding and it's only six to eight minutes to begin with, yeah, you know? Yeah, I mean it, the movie is cheap, but I feel it does have a certain charm just because it – it embraces the film noir genre so completely. When he, in the beginning, when he's in the diner and the camera closes in on him and everything goes dark and all you see are just his eyes, as he's obviously, like basically the movie is told in flashback, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just it's just those little. Even though it's it's a no budget movie, they they still do a pretty good job in certain scenes of evoking a certain atmosphere or that, that full noir feeling. So the movie does have, like, the movie does have its charms. I feel like it's the kind of movie you have to watch at, you know, like 3 a.m. in the morning or something to really to really get into it because that's kind of the feeling that, that, that it's trying to evoke, I think. Yeah, I, I really like the feeling 
at the beginning, like the first shot of the movie is him just walking along the road, like the road. And the way it's shot, it's so dark. You can barely see him in the darkness. Like you see, like his face outside of his beard and his clothes are what's sticking out. And then it's just more darkness. And he's like, you know, um, cars are passing. And it's like the only time he gets light is when he gets to the diner. And, um, yeah, like you said, they even make the diner um, thing. Like, they did a lot of close-ups of his face to show how haggard he was, and it was, like, all in shadow, even though the diner, when you saw everyone walking around, was completely cheery. You know, they have jazz music on, they're talking. But, like, for him, I think it was a, did a good job of showing that this character is, like, always in darkness. Like, he has a chip on his shoulder, and I think that's very... Um, film noir-like. Uh, sort of like uh, in the movie DOA, it starts with the... The you know the the protagonist be like oh I'm also telling his life story he's also disheveled he it's also in darkness and he's gonna um in that movie he's like well I'm he's gonna die that's the whole thing and then this one it's like um by having the close up and he's in shadow and um it just shows right away it gives it's like this character has a chip on his shoulder he has just something dark or sinister with this character even though he could be in a completely lit environment. That's not his world. And when he starts telling his story, they kind of went overboard. I don't know if you wrote anything about this, but like it, his face gets darker to a point where there's only light like right above his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it was like his, they put him more in shadow and his face, his eyes are the only thing that are, um, are really visible. And it's, I, I wrote down um, close up on Grizzle's face. Uh, yeah, when he has a monologue, his eyes get darker and it's like his eyes are the only part that have emotion. Um, cause later on when it's like, um, he's at the, this is jumping forward a little bit. We should go back. But like when he's walking his girlfriend, she says, I'm going to, you know, go to Los Angeles. You see this real sadness in his eyes, um, on the darkened street. We can't really see. And I, I think they're trying to say that like maybe the last emotional or good part of him if is, is his eyes. Um, like, so I was, like, really into it as soon as I saw this. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> What's going to happen? Yeah. And I was expecting some gangsters. Maybe he caught his girlfriend cheating and he murdered her. I was so set for, like, some plot. You know, what's this guy have? You know, his man with nothing to lose. Yeah, I mean, I guess before before <laughs> we just get into the plot, um, let's just quickly talk about, about Tom Neal's acting, who plays Al Roberts. Um, mm-hmm. not, not a great actor, I'd say. <laughs> um, he the funniest scene in the movie, or one of the funniest scenes, is when he's when he calls he calls Sue in Los in Los Angeles, and you that you don't you never hear her talk. He, you only see him speak on the phone, and mm-hmm. his acting is I don't know his acting is just so bad because he's there's almost no pause between when he says something to her and when she's supposed to be replying. And then at the end, he's like, oh, I love you. And he does these two sort of kissing noises at the end. He's like, <laughs> I just thought that was, that was, that was, that was funny. Um, but I kind, of, I kind of liked him more as the movie went along. At the beginning, I was like, oh, this is not the most appealing kind of main character for a film noir. But by the, but yeah. by the end, I, I kind of warmed up to his character and didn't actually mind him that much. Yeah, I um, what I thought was interesting was he went crazy like an asshole when uh, 
the guy put on like jazz music and like swing jazz music with um in the diner with a heavy clarinet sound and to me i wrote down you know benny goodman question mark and probably not him mm. but definitely not i mean with this low budget but it's like reminiscent of benny goodman's um music which in the the 1930s you know it really Benny Goodman's high point was probably the 1938 concert at Carnegie Hall. And his, well, Benny Goodman's um, feeling is just like, we're in the depression, so let's dance. You know, like, put it, you know, like, like you know, it's like, a, it, there's a sort of like innocence in it. And um, I read into it almost, it's like it's 1945 now. And while the music is still still good, it's almost like out of touch with the music of the times and also the feeling of the times. It's like right at the end of World War II. I felt like, you know, this, you know, at the beginning, his the character yells, not only could, well, literally because he was in the jazz club and reminds me of, reminds him of his girlfriend, but also like, um, you know, he's in a bad place and it's like this sort of chipper music is just like grating at this point. And, it, you know, you maybe could read into it that it's grating to everyone it's like you know you're in world war ii and stuff it's like this let's swing stuff doesn't really fly anymore and you know benny goodman's career really sank around world war ii and you know you world war ii and around it's like when you have troy parker and bebop and post bop and miles davis coming out so i think you know it's almost like he's yelling at a rem remnant of the past in a way and um i think it's also why his club's so empty it's like, it's you know, like he's in this poor club and it's like they're doing old music in a way. Um, I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and I love his, his reaction shot when the guy puts the music on the on the jukebox. It's, it's I don't know, it's it's another piece of, of bad acting, but he... He kind of reacts as if he's have as if he's having like a sudden uh, I don't know like he gets a big shock or like a seizure or something, and at first I was like, why is he reacting like this? It's just music, but then obviously it's because it evokes, you know, his memories of of Sue and their time at the nightclub and yeah, it's that whole diner scene in the beginning is is quite entertaining actually. Oh, my favorite line in the whole movie comes from that diner scene. I wrote it down. Um, the guy who he yells at, he talks to the the waitress. And he goes, "Doris, change for a dime." And I'm like, <laughs> it just it just shows how much we've come with inflation that like you could get change for a dime. <laughs> so just a dime. just refresh my memory. A dime is is how many how many cents? Ten, ten cents. cents. Okay. Yeah. So, so <laughs> it's like, oh man, I need to break ten cents. Yeah. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> So it made me laugh out so, loud. <laughs> so a cup a cup of coffee wouldn't even cost a dime? I I don't think so. Wow. Uh, <laughs> or maybe around yeah. that. I think he was getting the, the change for the jukebox and he mentioned that it costs five cents for the jukebox. Yeah. But it's just absurd how cheap everything is. It's like I don't understand looking back now how an economy can even work. Because later they get like seven hundred dollars and I'm like, man, that is so much money if he needs change for a dime at the beginning. Like, you know, like, I can't even fathom how, like, how much change were you carrying around? And I think back, I'm not sure if this is when we still had half cents in this country, like half of one penny, but it's just, you know, it's just, the, I don't understand, like, the value of money is just so different, I can't even comprehend it. Not just, like, 
how things were cheaper, but like how um, how things broke down. It's like how can you pay for for things so like um, yeah, just the relative money of things just it just completely was baffling me, mm. you know. So he obviously so he 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 hitchhikes to Los Angeles because he wants to meet up with Sue, and. Well, no, I don't want to go there yet. I want to get back. We need to go slower because we're. I like the diner, but my favorite part of the movie is actually the jazz club. Um, when he leaves the jazz club, I really love the long walk he does with his girlfriend because it's very film noir. Like everything's covered in like fog. You can barely. There's certain parts where you can only see the two characters walking. Everything's so dark, and. Um, they start, they're walking for a bit, and then they pass, I think it's 72nd Street, and they keep going, and they pass, like, 79th Street, and they keep going, and I, I love how it's, like, it's, um, you have them talking, but it just shows how, like, desolate they are. Like, they have to walk home, and uh, it's, like, after four in the morning. It's, like, completely unsafe, and um, how... I also liked how there's a horse and buggy at one point in the background. Like, they're in the part of town where people have still have horse and buggies, you know? Like, um, I really liked that. I liked... Um, so the movie is set in the 1800s? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's just, like, at that point, not everyone... They're in the part of town where you don't even, they don't even have a car. And um, I liked how, you know, she wears a beret, which is sort of, like, implies her art like maybe our artistic and worldly goals. Like, you know, she wants to go for California and he's sort of like has this blue collar work hat, which is sort of like, he's completely satisfied working at jazz club, even though he doesn't have any money. And, um, yeah. Also my, my second favorite cultural thing after the dime scene is when she's talking to him, I was on the piano after hours and he's having a complete conversation with her with like the, the longest cigarette in the world in his yeah. mouth. <laughs> he never touches it. He can completely talk to her with it like dangling out of his mouth. I loved it. Yeah, that 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 seems to be a very that seems to be a very film noir thing is that that just that cigarette dangling from the mouth and as he's talking, the cigarette just kind of bobs <laughs> up and down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually, I re, I'm, I'm glad we went back to that scene where they're walking down um, down the street and it's all foggy and stuff because that that was that was that was a cool scene, very obviously very atmospheric, sort of sets the mood. Um, yeah, one of the like yeah one of the scenes in the movie that I think they they actually do a really good job given that they didn't have a lot of money to work with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I mean a lot of film noir mo- uh, movies don't have much money. Which is why, like, <clears throat> you know, I have a whole a box set of, like, five movies downstairs. And they're all, like, they're all film noir, but they're all ones that don't have copyright. And that's usually a sign that, like, the movie was made cheap. That either, like, the people who made it don't own the copyright or it was, you know, they didn't, didn't have money to renew it or something like that. And so I think um, film noir movies on the cheap is very, very commonplace. And in these early scenes where they're walking, they really use it to their advantage. Like, they don't have many characters, and they could just be walking down a set, but the way they, they light it and stuff, they really optimize what little money they have. What what was the quality like of, of, your, of your DVD copy? It... Okay. For the first chunk of the movie, it was perfect. 
but there's certain scenes where it went down to quality where it looked like a deteriorated like 1940s or 1950s well, I guess like 1950s TV show like the film was really decayed and then in some scenes the sound was decayed where it just sound grainy or whatever but those those scenes were rare and it kind of came in and out it was usually during one sh- one continuous shot so if someone was like talking it would be like you know graining and like the sound would go up it have weird sounds and then when the other person talked if it was like a different cut it would be like it could be completely different quality it wasn't so much this to be schizophrenic but it was um it did go up and down as it went along. How how was your your quality? Yeah, mine was similar. I think I the copy that I watched, I think was it was a cop was copied from DVD. Uh, what I'd read is that because the f- copyright had elapsed, that there there might be a lot of copies of this movie out there that are e- that are either severely edited or are just you know are just bad quality overall. So my my copy wasn't too bad. It kind of sounds similar to yours. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's the sad thing with these older films because, um, on one hand, it's great that you can anyone can see like a whole bunch of free movies, but at the same time, everyone's making their own knockoff version, and there's hardly any money be, to be made. It so when you put it on DVD, you're not really like caring if you restore it or anything like that, and so you really need like a um, high quality. Um, company like Criterion or something to restore it and have a definitive copy because. You know, there's no money for whoever made it to to go back and redo it. Like, um, you know, like there's a lot of copies of Nosferatu floating around, but then um, Kino Video, they really put a lot of money into making a like off like the best p- possible um, like transfer and everything that they po- could possibly do. But like, it's not it's something that's really rare, and so not that I think this movie needs to be like. Um, you know, someone the Criterion Collection needs to do something, but it's sort of a shame when you have movies that are older than like 1940, and you can't really see a definitive version of it, or it's edited, or no one's caring about the master print because there's so many copies floating around that no one wants to preserve it or redo, you yeah. know, like or master. It. It's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of a sad story. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously you have those rare occasions where you have a movie like, say, Metropolis, where they find some missing footage and. And they put together a, a a great version of the movie, which which is a lot like the original um, version that German audiences would have seen back in the day. But yeah, mm-hmm. with with this movie, obviously, um, that didn't happen. I just read one of the trivia notes I came across was that this was the first B movie chosen by the Library of Congress for its National Film Registry. Which mm-hmm. is, yeah, which is quite interesting. It also it says. It was also the first Hollywood noir that was honored, but I don't know what honor they're referring to. (laughs) It has been honored. Um, Yeah, it's also, yeah, it's kind of strange. It's like, I believe the uh, film registry was, oh, I can just look it up right now. It was started, yeah, in 88. That's what I thought. And this was chosen in 92. So that's really interesting that this was chosen, you know, like only four years after, you know, after it was allowed to be. You know what I mean? Like this, this was chosen very quickly. If Mm. you know, and I know there's a certain time period that needs to elapse, 
but like, like I, last week I watched Badlands, the the Terrence Malick movie, and that was chosen the next year. It's like how come? I guess it's thirty years. No, nah, that's a bad example. I don't know. It's uh, yeah, it's it's sort of bizarre. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this movie has like some merit. That's the thing. I kind of the biggest problem I have with this movie is it starts off relatively strong with some sort of vision and then just sort of meanders and falls apart, which is, it's just, just compounded with progressively worse filming and cinematography and acting as it goes on. And that's, you know, like it's, it's not like without mirror. And I think some of the scenes are very, um, like classic film noir, like them walking home or him smoking a cigarette in that jazz club, or his lighting when he's telling the story, but like I think the movies are worse when they, they have premise and then they just fail, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I guess since we're talking about kind of where the movie goes, um, do we want to get back into the plot? We yeah, well, I guess plot. no. The the kind of the movie, I guess the the plot of the movie kind of kicks into gear when he when he meets uh, Charles Haskell yes. Jr. So what do you think of this? Um, yeah, when I when when Charles Haskell when he picks him up, I thought, okay, so this is going to be like a shady a shady character, maybe it's like a gangster or something, and he's going to pull Al into, you know, either trying to get get him to do something for him or pull him pull him into some kind of scheme, and mm-hmm. and, and that's where, and that's obviously where everything is going to go basically off the rails um that's not exactly what happens <laughs> yeah no i i completely yeah. it's to the point where remember okay they're driving and they go to the diner and he's like oh come in i'll buy you all the food you want i'm like oh man this guy's gonna hold up the diner oh yeah like i thought i thought what was gonna happen was this guy is like a criminal and um was going to be like robbing people and so by being his hitchhiker he's like de facto accomplice or something like that you know like and that didn't happen but it actually made me to the point where I'm like oh like remember he's like he's making like Al's eating like crazy at the diner and the guy's like do you have enough he's like sure yeah I'm full it's like you sure it's like yeah and he's like all right well let me get this it's like oh you know like it's just almost built up mm. like like so he's like, about to pull a gun out and it's like here's some yeah. or I mean I thought maybe what he would have done is uh, obviously, just he could have tried to frame Al for something, um, something mm-hmm. that he either he had already done or he was going to do. So, no, that doesn't happen. They hit the road, and Al's driving this time, and Charles is having a nap, having a bit of a having mm-hmm. a bit of a sleep. Um, turns out it's not really sleeping. He's doing. <laughs> the, um, is it so? It starts raining. They stop the car, and Al's like, "Hey, we've got to put the roof up." Charles doesn't wake up, so he starts putting the roof up. Opens Charles's door. Charles falls out and hits his head on a rock, and Al realizes that Charles is dead. Now, can we? Whoa, whoa, whoa! I got a question. Yeah, well, can now. we assume that he was dead in the car, or was he only like passed out or sick or something? The way I viewed it was, I mean, it's pretty dark, this scene. I thought his head just fell in the mud. Um, because during the, the original driving scene, is every 
once in a while, he kind of made a grimacing face. And he said, hey, can you open the, um, like, glove compartment box and hand me, like, my pills? Oh, yes, I forgot about the pills. You're right. And so he kept taking pills again and again. And so I thought it was showing that he maybe had, like, a heart condition or something like that. Like, um, you know, there's a guy I, I work with right now, and he yeah, he had to leave early yesterday because even though he's young, he was like, ugh. He, he had to take pills for, like, heart palpitations, oh, yeah. and he just had to go because he could barely, like, move after a while. And so when he's taking these pills, I'm like, you know, maybe he has, like, a heart problem or something like that. I mean, it's never made explicit. But I can, you know, I just assumed that killed him. Yeah, well, when he fell out of the car, I thought that he sort of, his head either landed, like, next to a rock or on a rock. But they don't emphasize it too much. You know, there's not, like, a big music cue when it happens. Like, there's a music sort of cue, I think, when he falls out of the car. But um, when when Al is trying to rationalize to himself what he has to do, he um, I thought there was a line in there about how 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 the cops wouldn't believe him because it would look like the guy was hit over the head and that's how how he died so that's just why I thought maybe he died from his from the head wound but I don't know if there even is a head wound yeah I mean I don't know we'll get into that for a mm-hmm. second but one question is who do you think this Charles Haskell is because on one hand he's not in the plot enough but on the other hand do you think he's uh, telling the truth or do you think he is like a gangster Cause it's like, oh yeah, you know, I got like all these cuts because of stuff. Like, I got it from dueling with Franco-Prussian swords, and I got these claw marks because this girl was like crazy and stuff. Well, I mean, I was getting to yeah. that. But um, do you think? And he has just a roll of like seven hundred dollars on him. Do you think he is also someone who is running away from something? Or I mean, I guess he's not running away at this point. But do you think he's like? like the main character becomes at the beginning? Yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I mean, we kind of find out later or close to the end of the movie, we kind of find out what what his scheme was, what he was trying to do, but I don't know if he's a gangster. You think he, you think for a while that he's he's a bookie or something like that. That's how he made his money. And then, yeah, yeah he, t- he talks about, you know, the woman scratching him and then the scar on his arm. So it's not... It's not a well-defined character in the sense of obviously you don't know his background, and that's probably intentional. But it's a strange, yeah, it's it's a strange plot, um, sort of, or a strange turning point in the, in the plot because Al Roberts is not a, you know, he's not inherently a bad guy. He's just a piano player in a jazz club. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't seem to have a shady past. Like he wasn't involved with crime, and now mm-hmm. he's trying to make a new life for himself. And then, basically, his life gets messed up because he just happens to meet this strange character. Um, all you know, almost halfway through the movie, and mm-hmm. the guy just suddenly dies, and Alice like. Oh shit! What am I gonna do? Am I gonna just go to the cops? No, I can't do that because they won't believe me. They'll pin it on me. I'll go to the gas chamber, or I'll just hide the body and I'll assume his identity. So, I mean, I guess because he makes that decision, it puts him on a doomed path. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't. Yeah. Or a detour. Oh, oh. <laughs> hey, wait, isn't that the name of the movie? <laughs> 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 
<laughs> oh wow, clever! <laughs> so, I, I don't like. I don't know if I like the way the plot develops, or if I don't like it. I'm kind of ambivalent about it. Maybe what if I rewatch the movie? I'll 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 have a better. I'll, I'll be able to better articulate how I feel about this turn of events. I don't know. What's what's your view of of this character and and how he gets introduced? Well, first you're not going to rewatch this movie. Don't. Don't do that. Hey, it's um, only seven <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I wanted more Charles Haskell because you don't really get to know who he is, but then in some ways the entire rest of the movie is built upon him. And so I was a little let down by that. And I actually wrote in my notebook after um, you know, Alice sees that he's dead. I wrote, what is he doing? Because the way he was like rationalizing everything he's doing was so insane. It was like, look, if you go to police, like, you know, like, he has his medication, all this stuff, like, you have nothing really to hide, like, you know what I mean, like, just do it, and so he's like, oh, uh, the rational thing to do is drag his body onto the desert and bury it in a ditch with my identification, and I'm gonna wear his clothes, it's like, what are you, like, is, like, what are you doing, what are you doing right now, like, it just was kind of, like, completely, he's acting kind of dumb, and, you know, when you described it, you said, oh, well, Haskell got hit on the head. It looks like a murder. And, you know, that makes more sense. At the same time, this main character does a lot of dumb stuff the rest of this movie where I have to really uh, ask if he is an intelligent human being because he seems to do very rash things or nothing at all to the point where it's like really, it was really frustrating for me as a viewer. I kept being like, what are you doing? Stop doing this. Especially when we get to Vera in just a little bit. It's just like, why are you letting this happen? Like, stop. You know, it's just kind of, like, completely... He just seems completely powerless. Like, instead of, you know, going to the cops or whatever, he's, like, he's setting himself up as a murderer by doing what he's doing. So, um... I mean, I don't know. I mean, if the guy had a gash on his head, like, at the same time, you could... Like, I don't know. I feel like you could prove enough, like, look, he fell on the ground, look, here are his pills, he was having trouble, I would just hitchhike... Like, um, you know, like, I don't know, it just seems like he sets himself up needlessly to be in this, this huge conflict. Yeah, you know? it's, I think in, in film noir, you, you, you often walk, you walk a fine line between having the plot unfold in a way that, that, that seems not, not realistic, but you can, you can buy into it. Um, you know, something bad will happen to a character and, and, and the character will, We'll try and get out of it, but you you kind of just get sucked into the movie's world, and it's almost like you know this character is doomed, but you, you just you go along with the story. In this movie, I don't think they really managed to pull that off. Like you said, you have you have a you have a problem with how Al behaves in this movie, and he comes across as just being yeah being being acting stupid essentially, and I think he's not he's not a great and he's not a great character for a film noir. He has a lot of the, he has a lot of the traits that these characters have in these movies, but he's he's just a, like a real a really sort of sad character for a lot of the for most of the movie. And yeah, it's it's an in, it's interest it's an interesting kind of uh, interesting way they 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 portray him in the movie. Not completely successful, I think. Yeah, I mean from the get go, then they. They set him up to be a sad, sad. Yeah. You know, like when he's on the girl, when he's on the phone calls with his girlfriend. You just, you know, you made the kissing noises. He's like, 
uncomfortably sappy, I think even to a 1940s audience. And so it's kind of hard. They almost play him like that. He's almost like the the dumb husband on some 1950s sitcom. He's just kind of like a sad sap who kind of just like lets people around him bully him or put him in the circumstantial situations. It's like instead of taking charge of clearing his name, he kind of gets put in this circumstance. Once guy dies, he just goes with it. We're going to meet Vera in just one second, who uh, we should probably just get into. <laughs> well, Vera, the character of Vera, I feel, almost redeems the movie because this woman is fucking crazy, okay? There's no other it's... way to put it. <laughs> oh, well, one thing before moving on was, um, okay, so that, that policeman drives up. And he looks, he's talking to the guy, he's talking to Alice, he's putting up the roof. And I love the way Alice framed. It's like the camera shot through, like, camera's like right next to the cops. You see the cop's face looking through the window. And then it's like dry car, and then the car's window frames Alice's face with rain pouring down. It was really awesome. Um, and that whole scene is, the problem though is that that rain scene is the last film noir in the whole movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's dark, it's raining when Haskell dies, it's confusing, it's you can hardly see, and then the rest of the movie is like in sunlight, almost obnoxiously. So. No, I mean there are there are there's, there's some really nice nice uh, nicely filmed scenes in the movie where they they they're actually they actually get creative um, with the way they frame certain scenes. The one you just mentioned, um, and 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 how some scenes transition into other scenes, which you know I I can give the movie kudos for that, but. Um, but anyway, um, Vera, um, <laughs> a woman. Here's one question though: Is she is she crazy? Complete? Is she Rinna's crazy, or is she just a terrible actress, or both? Uh, because yeah. I don't know if she's a terrible actress because her character is really like aggressive and really over over the top. But I mean, I this I haven't seen her in anything else. I'm not familiar really with with, with what other movies she's done, but. She's obviously the femme fatale, but she, like right from the get-go, she's just, you know, in, in, his, in his face and she's real aggressive and she basically just bosses him around from, you know, the minute they meet. Yeah, even before she finds out he's he's in Haskell's car, like he's at the gas station, he calls over to her, she's like hitchhiking and she comes over almost like a zombie or ghost, like her eyes completely wide. Like, she almost looks like she's possessed. And she gets in the car and she's just, like, staring forward. You know, it's just, like, really um, crazy. Plus, you know, you did have Haskell say, like, oh, I picked up this broad and she, like, cut me up. You know, mm-hmm. so she – but he also seemed kind of like a pervert. Like, oh, yeah, hitchhike for nothing. It's like, oh, wow, he tried to rape some girl. That's how I took it. But then you meet this girl. You're like, no, maybe she just, like, is crazy and she just cut him up. Like so. Um, yeah. So sh- shortly after he picks her up and the, and they start driving, I kind of I struggled to follow the plot a little bit because she suddenly starts talking to him about how this is Haskell's car and you're obviously trying to be Haskell. What what exactly was her relationship to Haskell? Was she just another girl that he picked up, or was were they actually like husband and wife, or were they together? Oh. No, uh, she was hitchhiking and Haskell picked her up and then I think he got fresh with her or something and she's the one who scratched his hand yes, up. Okay. Remember he had these huge scars on it and uh, he said, yeah, you know, I picked up a girl and she wanted to hitchhike for nothing or something and she left these scars and then um, 
Yeah, he, uh, yeah, so he, he didn't mention her earlier. So she's just a crazy hitchhiker. All right, so then basically straight away she starts, I don't know, she starts pretty much blackmailing Al straight away. Yeah, here's the thing that doesn't make any sense, though, is, okay, yeah, you can see it's the same car, I guess, but she really jumped to conclusions quickly. Mm-hmm. And then he is such a little bitch. Like, she just, like, this is his car. Give me his money. We're turning to police. Do what I said. And he's like, yeah, yes, ma'am. <laughs> it's like, look, you're in the middle of the desert. Yeah. <laughs> just You take a right. You drive into the desert. You don't even have to kill her. You just kick her out of the car. Look, you're, like, twice her size. And just drive back. When you get to the next town, ditch your car, ditch your clothes, and you have $700. You can just, like, take a bus the rest of the way. Like, what are you doing? Why are you letting this woman, like, know who you are and all this stuff? Like, this is when I was, like, yelling at the TV, like, stop being an idiot, you know? Like, why are you letting this woman do this to you? You know, like, I mean, it, it, like, everything he does is, like, against common sense. Like, she has all the power over him to such a degree. It's like, well, where is she getting this? You only give me, the only reason she has this power is you keep giving it to her, you know? He's like, oh, my real name's this. Like, it's like, no, don't tell her your real name. What are you doing? Like, stop. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, like, like it was, it was driving me insane. Yeah, yeah, and this scene goes on forever too. This like drive scene, it's like fifteen minutes of her just like yelling at him about he's a killer and all this stuff while they drive, and he goes, "Oh, no, don't tell anyone." It's just I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't stand. Yeah, it. I mean, so, I guess that that is probably one of the main problems with the movie is that he's that L is just he's but he's too much of a sad, sad character, and uh, I mean maybe it, it pales in comparison because I watched. You know, I watched The Big Sleep and Out of the Past recently, and and Double Indemnity, and you you kind of you sort of compare them with the main male characters in those movies, and yeah, there's no there's just no real comparison. It's um yeah, it it uh, I guess most of the movies' problems stem from from this main character, and I wonder. Because basically the whole movie is, is 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 him telling us the audience what what has happened. So yeah, I yeah. wonder if I wonder if everything that happens in the movie is actually the way it happened, or if some of it is maybe him creating this fantasy where he rationalizes it to himself that he actually didn't have much of a choice in how everything unfolded to make him yeah That's- to make himself look good. Maybe I don't know. That's really interesting because that means it's almost like uh, Rashomon where it's just like the character, depending on which character is telling the story, it's like the, the narrative is completely different. Well, it's like it's the same basic narrative, but like they're completely guilt-free. Um, I, I didn't take it like that, but it's really interesting. I mean, like, I, mean I don't think you can say for sure if that's, tr- if that's the true way or not. Though I hear Rashomon was like I think in the 50s and that was considered like – Groundbreaking narrative, so maybe. Yeah. No, not, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. It could yeah. be, though. The, but the, the whole thing I took from it, though, was that, like, his narrative was over dramatization of what you're watching. Like, he's hitchhiking. He's like, man, you gotta make that guy book for hitchhiking. Like, you know, he's just talking about how hard it is and stuff, and you just watch him stand around. It's like, I almost felt like he was being a, um, more of a baby, I guess. Like, <laughs> just, that's how I took his narration. He always kind of was like, yeah, I'm grizzled and stuff, but then you watch him just get punt, pushed around the whole movie, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, his, his narration is obviously supposed to invoke the whole full noir feeling, but a lot of the time it doesn't really work very well because it comes across as 
like I don't know the the filmmakers or the writer just trying too hard, and the dialogue just doesn't have the have the same ring to it, and and that you would find in a better film noir. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I might be giving the movie too much credit in that regard. Maybe it's not maybe it's not really going for that. Um, you know, try it's not really. Has that maybe it doesn't have that that nuance when it comes to how the story is being told to us? That that would be that would be interesting. Now I feel like um, the problem, though, I, I guess it stems from the narration itself. Is run, you know, about twenty minutes into the movie, I wrote down like, who who is he talking to? Because you see him at the diner, I'm like, is he talking to someone or how? To, and it's like, oh, he's just thinking. It's like, well, then why is he explaining it to someone else? And I think that's a big problem. It would be much better if he was walking and maybe like the ending where he gets picked up and he has to explain it to the cops or like he gets, you know, arrested for a vagrancy. And then that would paint his story much more interestingly that he has to, um, you know, p- put himself in a sort of innocent role and that would make it more interesting. It's like, you know, the um, Haskell dies in a way that's like not an accident or more explicit. There's like, oh, he murdered him, but the way he's telling the story is he's, it was just an accident or something like that. That would make it a lot more interesting. Yeah, I mean, he, um, it's basically just he's just having an, an internal monologue with himself. That's how we, that's how we're experiencing the movie. It's not like, and like in Double Indemnity, you have Fred McMurray. When we first meet him, he's he, like he's already injured, and he starts recording his basically his confession. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so it's yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. It would have worked better if he was actually talking to someone or confessing to someone about what happened. Yeah, because I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm sort of exploring the movie here with you, and it's sort of like I really like the idea of what you said of maybe he's trying to paint himself in a good light, but I feel like the way it's narrated. In, I don't think it really works like mm. that. I feel like if they did, though, you know, <laughs> more credit to the movie. If they, I don't think they set up though that that would be any different, you know. No, no. Well, anyway, um, well, we're pretty much into the last, well, the final act of the movie because it's only six, seven minutes long, and he and Vera, are, Vera, are on their way to Los Angeles. Okay, so, this is when the movie lost the plot yeah. for me. Well, okay, first off, I want to point out. It was insane when they went to California because it was like entering another country. It's like I know United States, each states have their own laws and stuff. But in this movie, it's almost like, I don't know, it reminded me of like a World War II movie where it's like the British spies trying to get out of like Germany and the Gestapo are on him because he's like at the border. There's like three cops on him like, what are you doing here? What's in your trunk? You're going to get work here? You got to change plates if you're here for over 30 days. It's like, was it really like this that you had to like, like you can only stay in a state for so long before you had to change like license plates and you had to declare if you wanted to look for work or something? Like that's kind of intense. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about it because they ask him, do you have any fruit and vegetables or do you have any poultry in your car? And, you know, that's because – like I'm familiar with those kind of things if you're you know coming or if you're going in and out of New Zealand or into Australia or certain countries but I didn't know that that they actually had those kind of checkpoints in the states in the in the 1940s yeah I mean they, they I guess they must have it was something I was completely unaware of until I saw this movie but at the same time it's so uh it's thrown in there without 
explanation in a way where it's just that just must have been how it was. I mean, maybe it's ratchet up in that there's three cops talking to him, but like I guess you did have to do that sort of thing, and it you know it kind of makes more sense. Like, um, you know, like at that time, you know, the U.S. is in World War Two, but we're still not like one of the you know we're not like the world power yet, and so I think. In order to to sort of um, project, you know, um, influence abroad, like I think the states had to become more nationalized, if that makes any more sense. Then sort of have like national policy and national defense policy and stuff like that in the 1950s and stuff like that. Like it'd be like intense to like, you know, with the highway system that comes in the 50s, like how could you, I don't know, it just seems like it would, it would make commerce is too hard to have these checkpoints everywhere so i think with the i don't know i mean i'm just reading into it too much but I, i'm gonna just assume that the checkpoint thing was real but it's insane and i really want to learn more about it yeah they could have they could have added that in as well because they, they thought it would create a certain level of um suspense because it's like two or three cops asking him questions and you're like "Ooh, he's gonna get busted but there's no real suspense in that scene so i don't know it doesn't really work on that level yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so they get into California and then they decide they want to sell the car. How did they reach that that decision? <laughs> because she's like, yeah, sell the car, dum dum. Because if you leave the car, then they'll look for the owner of the car and then they'll find a dead body and then they'll find you. It's just like, I'm just watching this. Like, look, dude, just fucking drive the car in the ocean or something like that. Just like, why would they find it to you? You left his body in the middle of nowhere. Like. No one knows who the hell you are. Like, why are you listening to this woman? Mm. Um, yeah. And this is where the movie kind of loses it loses the plot. Not just, like, figuratively, but just goes off the rail because the majority of this movie, like, the last 45 minutes is him and Vera together. And it's just, like, the movie's tone and speed and everything just completely change. And they're, like, they're shopping for... They're at car dealerships. They're in hotels. There's like each time they're in a hotel, there's two major scenes in a hotel. It's just like forever conversations. You know, they're just like, oh, we're talking, now we're yelling, and it keeps going. And it's like, I'm like, what what about your girlfriend? Like, what are you what are you gonna do now? Like where what are you gonna what are you expecting to do right now? Like but the movie's almost like so concerned on him and Vera's like kind of like relationship or what they're doing that it's kind of like well isn't this whole point to get to los angeles why doesn't he just ditch the car and go see his girlfriend yeah we never we never see sue again yeah really he calls her up and then he like hangs up without talking to her but you know it's just yeah it's just like why would you have to deal with this woman and vera's voice and tone is like the most one of the most grating voices I've ever heard in my life. It's just like hard. It's hard to listen in this in this movie to like her talking and yelling and bitching. It was just like, and he's just like, oh yeah, no, sorry, no, no, don't tell the police. She's like, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, Jesus, shut up. Is she? Uh, is she? Um, is she Edward G. Robinson? Did she just turn into him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I understand. I understand what you're saying. I mean, when he meets her, when he picks her up, he's like, she had a she had a natural beauty, the kind you'd find, I don't know, like she like like a homely kind of beauty, and 
I don't know. She just looks crazy to me the, from the minute we meet her. Like, you, like I think you said, like she, like she should, she should be a character in some kind of a horror horror movie or a zombie movie or something. It's, um, it's an interesting character. I kind of it made the movie a little bit more entertaining, and and the last, for, at least for the last act after the, after the confusing kind of, Charles Haskell Jr. thing. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it, it it the movie does go a bit crazy once once her character enters the fray, um, but then they find they find like a newspaper article that explains something about Charles Haskell. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Was that the uh, Charles Haskell is dying and he's some rich guy in New York and he's looking for his oh, son? Oh yes. And this, actually, this is the point where I'm just like, what am I doing? Because then it's like a back and forth about, okay, you're going to impersonate the son, or we're going to get rich. And she's sort of like, then we'll be together. It's sort of like she's creepily like in love with him too. You know, there's certain points where she tries to get him to have sex with her. Um, well, at least in the first time in the hotel room, she's like, I'm going to bed. And she like puts her hands on his shoulders. Yeah, and he just, he like he just shrugs it. her off. Yeah, but it's sort of like, I mean, I think she's just supposed to be crazy, but, like, yeah, the whole plot is that he's going to impersonate the son, and and then over the ensuing fight over that is when she uh, no, she gets killed. Yes. So. Ex- she gets killed accidentally because she, she distracts him by saying something, grabs the phone, runs into the other room, and then... Sh- and then she tries to make the phone call in such a way that the cord gets wrapped around her neck. Well, she's so wasted, it looks like she kind of, like, jumps onto the bed. Yeah. Roll, like, falls over... No, she, like, falls over a couch. No, falls over the bed. She's kind of, like, covered in the cord. And I was like... He's like, I'm going to rip the cord out. And I'm like, dude, just cut it. And then we start pulling it. I was like, oh, she's going to strain mm-hmm. her. I just, like... And then he kept doing it. It was sort of, like... It was kind of brutal, actually. Because he kept pulling it really hard. He's like trembling. It's like, oh, you know, you're squeezing the life out of right. Yeah, now. I mean, I thought it was. It's, it was. It's I thought it was kind of an interesting death, and and and, the, and just in the sense that I hadn't really seen much like something like that much, and and movies from that era, the way that she gets killed. But it's kind of like just another, um, you know, unfortunate thing that befalls him, and he's like, well, you know, now now you're now you're completely screwed because. You didn't kill Charles Haskell, but you did kill this lady, and it's like, you poor little sap. You know, you're gonna go to the ga- you're gonna go to the gas chamber. <laughs> that, that, that's some, something that bothered me too. Is it's like okay, well, if the state laws are so crazy that they have their own police, like just leave. Like you have over seven hundred dollars, you don't even need to sell his car. You leave the scene of the crime. It's, it looks like Charles Haskell does it. You leave all Charles Haskell stuff in there. You leave the scene of the crime with 700 bucks. You pick up your girlfriend tomorrow, who she mentioned before she was unhappy because she was working as a you know a hash slinger is what she said. And so it's sort of like, which means waitress. So you go tomorrow, pick her up. You have enough money. You buy a train or plane ticket. You go all the way back to New York. You pick things up like it never happened. But then he's like, yeah, and I left my all my information on the dead body. It's like, why did you do that? Yes. Like for the, the body in the desert. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, he's like, no, I have no identities. It's like, well, why didn't you just leave a, a, you know, I understand if you leave your own information, then 
it looks like you're the one who died. That makes sense. But if you left no information, who who would even know him? Like, you'd be gone by, you know, it's like, what are you doing? So it's almost like he kills her like an idiot where he's obviously strangling her and continues anyway. You're like, oh, like, stop. Why are you pulling on the cord like that? Oh. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, no, now i got to flee. And it's like, oh, <laughs> okay, what are you doing? And he's like, okay, well, I can't be with my girlfriend now. I'm like, no, why, why wouldn't you? And he's like, no, now i got to live like a nomad with no name. It's like, no, what are you doing? <laughs> It's just like, it's just like, dude, you stupid idiot. Yeah. Stop. Just, you just want to just kill yourself because you're just off. So, so then it, it goes back to him sitting in the diner. He gets up to leave and he's walking along the road and he's, his narration goes something like, oh, they, they found, they found Vera's body and, and I'm sure they say something like they're looking for her husband, Charles Haskell. Or they're looking for Charles Haskell in connection to her murder? Yeah, but he says that, um, he's like, it's funny, uh, Charles Haskell's death got me into a murder charge, and Vera's death got me out of one. Think, you know, or Charles Haskell got me out yes. of one. So he says that he can't go to New York because that's where he put his information on Charles Haskell's body, and he can't go to California because they're looking for Charles Haskell who, you know, like, is actually the other body. So it, they're not necessarily looking for him. I think the reason if he gets picked up the end, which maybe I can't tell if it's he's saying this is what's going to happen or is what what's happening is, you know, back in the day, police used to pick you up for vagrancy. If you're just wandering around and stuff without, like, identification. So I think it's just inevitable that, like, he's going to get – you know, he, he has a life of being in prison ahead of him because they're going to catch him. He has no ID. He's like, oh, I don't know who, where, you know, like he can't say who he is. And so they're just like, you know, I, I doubt he's going to be to the gas chamber, but I think he just has a life of incarceration ahead of him. You know? Yeah. Well, when I when I was reading some trivia about the movie after watching it, it was, one thing I came across was that the the Hollywood production code at the time – um, was um, st- um, stipulated that you couldn't show you, you couldn't show a murderer in a movie getting away with 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 their crime, S- and that 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 last scene where he gets picked up by the highway patrol was actually that wasn't in the script; it was kind of improvised. So okay. it, I think they they kind of it's meant to be a little bit ambiguous. It's meant to be seen as he does get busted. So they they they're complying with the code, but it could also be like you say, he's he's kind of a vagrant, so the the highway patrol just picks him up, but you don't necessarily know if he's going to get if he's going to get caught for for those two people getting killed. Yeah, I mean you saw this a lot in um, around the code era where it's like there'll be a criminal, and then you have to have like that last scene where they either get caught or killed or something like that. Like you can't just let them escape. So, you know, that's probably why he acts like such an idiot, too. He can't can't just escape because the code won't let him, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, that's Detour. Um, I mean, I, like, I found the movie really interesting, you know, kind of, I kind of, I mean, I, I, I enjoy I enjoy low budget movies if they have, like, a certain sort of element of entertainment about them, um, and, and you know I love film noir, and so 
the movie did have its moments for me, but it has a lot of problems. You know, the main character is just acts really stupidly. He's not that likable. Um, uh, you know, th- characters get introduced and we never see them again. Um, so it's a, the movie is a bit of it's a bit of an of of an oddity. It's um, you know, copyright has elapsed. Um, some people ha- have some people regard it as as a great film noir but i feel like it's a movie that maybe people rate it so highly more um i don't know more because of how it represents the film noir genre not because it's a legitimately good movie if that makes sense um so yeah that's my feeling about the movie i mean I don't know if I'll, if I'll ever rewatch it. Like I said, I think if you watch this movie really late at night, maybe you'll get more into the spirit of the movie or you, you'll get more of that kind of haunting um, atmosphere that it's trying to evoke. But, um, yeah, overall, not n- not really a good movie. Probably a, a pretty bad movie, I'd have to say. Yeah, it's sort of like one of those... Um you know, horror movies you see where it has, like, a cool monster, one of the cool two scenes, but overall it's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of like how this movie is. It's, like, cool, some cool scenes, like, walking in the fog, I like that, or some cool shots, like the shot through the car, but overall it just, it just sucks, you know, and it's, like, um, yeah, it just reminds me of, like, a monster movie or something like that where you're just, like, oh, wow, cool, like, here's a cool monster or, oh, there was a cool scare, but then you're kind of just left being, like, disappointed, mm. I guess. There are times when it kind of reminded me of, like, a like a Twilight Zone episode. Mm-hmm. Like, it could almost have been, like, a, just, like, a 60-minute long Twilight Zone episode, but just, but, but not as good. It, it, there are times when it almost tries to create that kind of thing of, man, all this, this strange stuff is happening to this character and, and he doesn't know why. And I think maybe if they'd gone that way with the movie, it could have been a better film. It probably wouldn't have been, uh, it wouldn't have been like an, a, an all-out film noir if they had, had, had done that. It would have been more of a suspense with a few horror elements mixed in, some film noir elements. Um, that's probably that's maybe how I would have tried to make the movie if they still wanted to tell the story this way. Um, as it is, it, it doesn't really work. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of sucks that he's always a sapless mm. sap. Or, or, yeah, sapless sap? Oh, anyway, he's always a sap. Like, I think a Twilight Zone would have had the twist that's like, he doesn't kill the guy, but he's on the run, but then he actively kills that woman and then he's on the run for real or something yeah. like that where it's sort of like fate catches up with him or something like that um but yeah it's disappointing but one thing i wrote down which i thought was interesting because we were talking about the femme fatale um last week and in this movie um the femme fatale is brunette and the um like the virginal woman is blonde and she's almost like angelic like like he can't even see her in los angeles because he says like he almost like he'll taint her because of what he's become you know like after what's happened and i thought it was really interesting because um you know i'm starting to think about it like um in you know the 19 like well like most white countries um you know there's racism like there was um 
racial policies in the United States, not as harsh as like Nazi Germany, but there were some, you know, the 1920s and 30s here about um, how Aryan people are the most beautiful. And I feel like maybe there might be a cutoff with um, film noir, just a theory where it's like, if it's up to the end of World War II, the wholesome women are going to be blonde and the, the darkly ethnic brunette women, dark haired women are going to be the, femme fatales but then in the post um you know post holocaust world and the movies that come out in the 50s i think it's going to be reversed um and i was thinking about because it it's like well what about marilyn monroe and marilyn monroe is sort of like um she's not really seen as wholesome she's seen as like voluptuous and a femme fatale in like real life you know like she's not even uh seen it seen as wholesome and you have people like um you know elvis uh is a natural blonde, but he dyed his hair black. Like that was the style. So I feel like maybe there is a, a little bit of um, a racial thing going on where it's like, yeah, we still have sort of like pro Nordic views on beauty. Uh, and then with horribleness of World War, you know, the Nazis and the Nuremberg trials afterwards, it's sort of, oh, well, like, you know, blonde women are like sexy tricksters and the brunette next door is the one you should be going after. I think there might be like a switch there. That's just the theory. Of yeah, no, I, I know we did talk about it last week, and I, I think like in some of the early noirs, it was definitely the blondes that were the, the like the scheming, um, you know, like the, the the scheming ones who were 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 ultimately like the, I guess the evil the evil woman and the brunettes are sort of the wholesome ones. But then this definitely seems to be a shift, or they they seem to mix it up more at least um, a little. Okay, maybe it's ran- maybe it's random. Yeah. I was saying actually the opposite that like noirs from the late thirties to nine to late forties are gonna have the blonde as the angel and then and the other and the, the dark haired as the as the vixen and then the opposite in the fifties because of World War II. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. So maybe, yeah. yeah, okay. So I don't mean I don't know if it's true, I haven't seen enough movies, but like there was a um I also kind of came to that conclusion, not just because the woman was so blonde, like, they obviously picked one that was, like, she's very blonde, and she, the, and, um, oh, what's, what's her name, uh, and, uh, Val is very, it's Val, right? No, yeah, Vera, yeah. sorry. And Vera's, like, very dark-haired and dark-featured, like, she, you know, she looks, I don't know, like, some, in quotes, ethnicity, and I felt like, Part of the movie, maybe it's just because it was cheap, but they kind of rely on the girlfriend, the blonde girlfriend, being a good girl because she's blonde. Because she's so characterless. You know, she's only talking in, like, one scene. And because of that, it's almost like she's this ideal he's after. And I'm like, well, what supports this? And I was like, oh, maybe just because she's, like, blonde. You know, she's just a... Because she's blonde, she's inherently good, while this, you know, he should never stop for that crazy-looking you know, ambiguously ethnic, dark-haired woman at the side of the street. You know, I feel like part there was like a under, um, I don't know. I feel like that was like sort of in the subtext a little bit. Maybe I'm just reading too into it. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, that, that, that I don't think I think it's it's, it's valid. Um, it's definitely you're making valid points. Um, I mean, that's that's part of the I guess the whole film noir genre and 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 all the complexities that it that it contains. So, um. It's definitely an interesting. I mean, maybe if like as as we see more film noirs from that from that period, 
um, I think it'll become probably become clearer whether there is a certain pattern um, um, to the one that you're alluding to. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's. I just was in that idea I was pointing out there because of, um, you know, just I know a little bit of like, um, you know, a little bit of like uh, from U.S. history classes and stuff. Like our sort of view on what was considered beautiful and stuff in the 1930s, and we did have like a eugenics policy in the United States, and um, there was an official statement that, uh, you know, a United States citizen is anyone of Aryan stock, and like all this kind of racist stuff mm -hmm. that then, with Nazi Germany taking it to like this insane degree, kind of went out the window um, in the 1950s, you know, like, um, yeah. I mean, like, you can see it in a casual degree in movies, too. Like, in His Girl Friday, part of the thing was that, like, um, I don't know, the the female journalist character, she, um, she was born off to get married, but part of it is that they need to get blood tests and stuff like that. You know, they need to get tests so they don't have, like, syphilis or anything like that. Like, it was just, that was the society, and it kind of went out the window with, um, yeah, with just how insane Nazi Germany went with it. So uh, just knowing that made me go, okay, well, at what point does it go, is, is hair color matter, which which role they're supposed to be? Because they sort of get into archetypes in a way. Like like in this movie, you see the girlfriend, you're like, oh, she's good. And you see this woman at the side of the road, and you know she's bad from the way, they, obviously, that they're filmed. But they're also um, from the hair color and also from uh, – you know, there's also all the cues like, um, sorry to keep going on this rant, but like if a woman's wearing red in a film, or it's alluded to that she's wearing red, it means she's a betrayer. And that comes from uh, like down the street um, near my house is where John Dillinger, the uh, oh yeah, the bootleg gangster, yeah, it's where he was shot down, and he was shot down because he's like he was at the um, the Biograph Theater with a girl. One of his girlfriends, she was like a madam of a brothel, and she wore red so that the FBI could know which one was Dillinger and shoot at him. And so, um, yeah, so a lot of times it's seen as like, oh, if she's wearing red, she's a betrayer. And so I feel like when you have cues like that in a film, I think there's also, depending on what the mindset is at the time, if a woman's blonde hair or brunette says a lot. So, yeah. I, I don't know if, what, if, if my theory is true. I just want to bring it up since we were talking about last time and if and maybe keep it in mind if we'd watch any more film noir movies so for our discussion. Awesome. Well, I guess on that on that note, um, um, we um, I think I think we should probably uh, uh, look at a few more examples from the genre. Um, okay. Obviously, we don't know what the next. Oh, we can we can. I could just pull one right about my head right now. Do you want to? Um, do you want to watch The Stranger with Orson Welles? The Stranger, not one. I, I don't think I've actually come across that title before. It's about a 1946. Um, Orson Welles plays a uh, Nazi war criminal who is living under an assumed name, and I believe he's like a professor at a university. And so it's about the detective who's like. Trying to find him. It's uh, it's supposed to yeah, be. Yeah, I'm no, I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, 1946. Um, yeah, got some really good actors in it. Edward G. Robinson, awesome. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Why, why not? I mean, it's kind of a, it's sort of you know we're getting into that that post World War Two period, so it might be might be interesting to to see what I guess what kind of themes come come out of the movie. Mm-hmm.